Welcome to Double Truck Stories, the home to some of the best features, investigations, and character portraits from across ESPN. I'm Mike Philbrick, your host for the Double Truck Stories podcast. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Many people think that Nick's owner, James Dolan, doesn't care about anything. But when you look a little deeper, you'll find that he does. But it's just not what people want him to care about. In an age where owners can be just as famous as the players, critics come from all corners to take down Dolan, the biggest name in New York sports. But how do you get the better of someone who wasn't even playing the game? Stick around after the story for my conversation with ESPN senior writer Ian O'Connor as we talk about how heavy is the head that wears the New York City crown. Now we present James Dolan Unplugged by Ian O'Connor. James Dolan Unplugged. For two stormy decades, New York's most famous sports enigma has lorded over the Knicks, the Rangers, and Madison Square Garden without apology. By Ian O'Connor. New York. James Dolan is dressed in black as he sinks into his couch in a Madison Square Garden suite, drags on a vape pen, and laughs at the booming sound check next door that is all but violently shaking the room. Justin Timberlake is just warming up, and so, it turns out, is Dolan, who's about to commit two hours to an examination. His critics might call it an autopsy of his two decades as the most powerful and polarizing sports figure in the world's most talked-about town. Bruised vocal cords would actually prevent JT from performing on this night. Not that JD, the band leader of JD and the Straight Shop, planned to stay for the show. Dolan is engaged in too many projects and conflicts on too many fronts to count. And on this hectic day, he stays busy in a rare interview by switching from offense to defense and back again. The transition his New York Knicks have failed to figure out for the better part of 17 years. Even though he stands only five foot six, Dolan, 63, fancies himself a fighter and has the scars to prove it. He has taken on all comers, sometimes foolishly, yet always leading with his chin and an unbending belief that he's doing right by his family, his employees, and his shareholders. Not necessarily in that order. New Yorkers usually love fighters, but wouldn't you know it, it's damn near impossible to find any who love this one. Dolan is not primarily known for his series of sports and entertainment business successes, including league-best franchise valuations for the NBA's New York Knicks, $3.6 billion, according to Forbes Research, and NHL's New York Rangers, $1.55 billion, or for the 129 postseason games his Rangers played over a dozen seasons before they wrote their fans in February with plans to rebuild. Dolan is best known as the overlord of the Knicks' never-ending futility and as the master of public relations disasters stretching from the lost 2007 courtroom battle to a female executive named Anuka Brown Sanders, ruled the victim of a hostile work environment to the 2017 scene of beloved former Nick Charles Oakley being hauled out of the garden by Dolan's security team before he was arrested and cuffed. The son of a cable industry icon, Charles Dolan, Jim Dolan, a father of six boys from two marriages, has been painted as a grown-up rich kid with a volcanic temper and a born-on-third-base makeup and as a hapless owner whose clashes with the media suggest he's more concerned with controlling negative commentary than he is with fixing the problems that encourage it. But there's more to Dolan than the character he has helped create. Even former officials who left him under unfriendly terms laud his Garden of Dreams charity for children in need, describe his hunt for a cure for pancreatic cancer as genuinely relentless, and concede that his staying power as a big player in the big city has as much to do with his ability to outfox corporate rivals. He sold Cablevision to Altice for $17.7 billion in 2015, then watched the sharp price of Altice drop like the Knicks in the Eastern Conference standings, as it does his bloodlines. On the other hand, one former Garden executive maintains that Jim Dolan would have been fired many times over had someone other than his father been in charge. Told of this assessment, Dolan recoils from the thought and mentions longtime investors who say they've bet their money on a wonderful company. You don't get fired for doing that, for making everybody wealthy, Dolan says. And to sit there and suggest it's because of my dad, that's somebody who's forgiving their own shortcomings? I'm in the position I'm in partially because that's the family I was born into, and the opportunity was there, and I took it. At the same time, just opportunity doesn't get you there. You've got to do something with it, and I think I've done something with it. But Dolan isn't lifting his raspy voice above Timberlake's bruised vocal cords on this day to merely throw shareholder satisfaction at fan despair in a vain attempt to balance his public standing. 
He is sitting before trays of cookies and cups of popcorn in a suite that won't ultimately be used for a show that won't ultimately happen to answer for everything good and bad about his leadership while one of his senior VPs takes notes to back up her rolling tape recorder. Dolan monitors everyone in the garden, including Dolan, though he speaks candidly as if his words would be kept among the three people in the room. The executive chairman is here to talk about whether he might someday sell the Knicks, he certainly didn't rule it out, about Phil Jackson's doomed obsession with the triangle offense, and about why he probably won't take part in the parade if the Knicks ever win it all for the first time since 1973. He is here to talk about why he ended his friendship with Harvey Weinstein before the film producer was accused of sexual misconduct by scores of women and later arrested on rape charges, and why he wrote a song, I Should Have Known, inspired by the guilt he felt in failing to stop Weinstein and other hashtag MeToo perps that invited a review of the Brown-Sanders verdict and led to Dolan's latest war with a media outlet. Dolan is here to answer claims that he has run the garden with an explosive Steinbrenner-esque impetuosity and to explain why he's devoting more time and energy to his growing entertainment empire, including the futuristic domes known as spheres he's building in Las Vegas and London, then to his under-construction basketball and hockey teams. Dolan is here to say that he wants to retreat into the background, that he sometimes books music gigs in Europe just because no one knows me overseas. But as much as anything, Dolan is here to say that he will keep punching back when he feels he has been unfairly attacked and that he will do so with the same competitive ferocity he needed long ago to start winning the most important fight of his life. I was close to killing myself with drugs and alcohol, Dolan says. With 25 years of sobriety behind him, the billionaire described by some New Yorkers as the worst owner in a post-Donald Sterling NBA does not merely see himself as a survivor. No matter what the standings say, he sees himself as a winner. Is Jim Dolan right, or is he delusional? Before you pass final judgment, you need to know a bit more about the man and his journey and the people who have helped shape both. Like many Long Island teenagers at the time, Jimmy wanted to be Joe Namath in white cleats and a fur coat. He read a magazine profile of the Jets quarterback that included photos of animal skins in the quarterback's apartment and asked his mother whether he could decorate his room the same way. Helen Dolan bought some faux giraffe skins and her son was one happy little Jets fan. Later. Jimmy decided he wanted to be a guitarist just like the late Dwayne Allman, who died in a motorcycle crash in 1971. Helen and Chuck Dolan were hardly fans of their son's musical ambitions and were relieved when he temporarily ditched his guitar at SUNY New Paltz after a semester at Boston University. I wasn't ready for college, Dolan says, in some summer school courses at CW Post to study business and communications and map out a career in his dad's company. Born in Cleveland, Chuck arrived in New York in the 1950s originally penniless, according to his oldest of six children, Patrick, who marveled over the fact that the family patriarch created an empire worth tens of billions. Chuck was the visionary who first wired Manhattan for cable TV and who founded HBO. He hired his youngest of three boys, Jim, to run a sports radio station, WKNR in Cleveland. But Jim's early rise in the Dolan dynasty was nearly extinguished by his alcoholism and his abuse of cocaine and pot that forced him into treatment at the Hazelden Clinic in Center City, Minnesota in 1993. Jim had taken his first drink at age 14. There's a lot of S-word you don't remember as an alcoholic. He responds when asked to cite his lowest moment. Dolan says family members and close friends ultimately intervened and told him he needed help. I do remember that my family was compromised, that I felt I was not being a great dad, he says. And that probably is, if you want to call it the low point, that's the disease. That's the whole thing. Dolan is asked whether he identified a root cause of his disease at Hazelden. Ah, he responds, that's a trap people fall into. You can't do that in recovery. You never blame your alcoholism and your disease on anybody or anything. You just take responsibility for it, and you treat it, and that's the life you lead, because as soon as you go down that road of saying, it's not my disease anymore, that's a very insidious disease. It'll come back and get you. It didn't come back to get Dolan, who was named CEO of Cablevision in 1995. Why was Jim the chosen one among the six siblings, especially so soon after his rehab? Mostly, New York Magazine once quoted Chuck as saying, it was because no one else wanted it. Jim's supporters say Chuck had more faith in his son than that. This was two years before the company purchased full control of the garden from partner ITT, 
and four years before Jim's love of sports and content made him the choice to run the building after the death of a trusted Chuck Dolan executive, Mark Lusgarten. Even as his hockey and basketball teams were floundering, Dolan proved himself a worthy adversary for big city foes in 2005, when he defeated Mayor Michael Bloomberg's bid to build a West Side stadium for the Jets and New York's 2012 Summer Olympic hopes, and when he defeated the smartest businessman he had ever met, his old man. Chuck said one former Garden executive comes across as an 8th grade science teacher, but when it comes to business, Chuck ate your heart out. Yet, Jim says he saw himself as probably a little more of a street fighter than his father, more along the lines of Chuck's rough-and-tumble associates, Les Garten and John Tata. Chuck, 92, was not made available for this story. When the Dolans battled over the Cablevision satellite venture known as Voom, Chuck wanted to keep it. Jim wanted to ditch it. The consequences were personal. It was painful for the whole family, Patrick says. We're Dolans. We're a bunch of stubborn Irish. They had it out. As horrible as that was, it blew over. Nonetheless, by persuading enough board members to vote against his father's wishes and force a sale, Jim had announced his declaration of independence and proved that he, too, had some game in the boardroom. I suppose that Dad did not expect me to be as independent as I was, Jim recalls. A lot of people didn't. Was his a Pyrrhic victory? Did Jim's boom triumph over the great Chuck Dolan embolden him to meet every challenge to his authority with a forceful response and to ignore advisors who counseled him to pick and choose his spots? These were natural questions to ask after Jim Dolan made the worst call of his MSG career, his decision to allow a sexual harassment case to go to trial. Rather than settle a case that begged to be settled, Jim took a lost cause to federal court in Manhattan, where a jury in 2007 awarded Anuka Brown Sanders, now a UNICEF USA executive who goes by Anuka Brown, $6 million as the victim of a hostile environment created by then-Nix President Isaiah Thomas and another $5.6 million as the victim of Dolan's retaliatory decision to fire her for making the claims. The parties later settled for $11.5 million. More than any defeat on the court or on the ice, that case and its unseemly revelations remained attached to Dolan over the years and severely compromised his brand in any attempt to earn the public's benefit of the doubt in future disputes. Asked whether he has any regrets about his handling of the case, Dolan still clings to his off-stated position that the jury got it wrong. I think we didn't defend ourselves well, he says, so shame on us. If I had to do it again, I'd be much more careful about how we defended ourselves. I'd be much more involved about it. I'd make sure that the truth came out, and the truth didn't come out. People told me when you're in these kinds of trials that it's stacked against you, as being the big employer versus particularly a minority woman. The second mistake we made was that even in defending yourself, you might come to the conclusion that there was no way to win the case, and so settle and get things out of the papers. That would have been probably a better decision then, too. So both decisions were probably not good and I'm the guy in charge so I have to take responsibility for them. Brown's attorney, Ann Vladek, responded to Dolan's comments by telling ESPN.com, The truth did come out, and I think the deck is stacked against an individual when you have a billionaire on the other side. It seems it's absolutely Dolan's style to blame everybody but himself, and the fact is he had somebody who really took him on in a way nobody ever has before, like Anuka did, and I think he has to make up all kinds of excuses for why it didn't work out for him. Yes. Jim Dolan has been the guy in charge of the garden for nearly 20 years, and over that time, he has said precious little about the controversial choices, antagonistic media relations approach, and volatile management style that have shaped perception about him as an owner. Sports fans need to hear his voice, and suddenly, if only temporarily, Dolan feels the need for something other than his singing voice to be heard. This is his opportunity to address the men and women who root for his teams, but not for him. This is his time to talk about some of the pressing issues and choices that have defined his chaotic reign. On Phil Jackson's failure as Nick's president. Look, when I brought on Phil, the big question is, are you going to stay out of it? And I swore I would stay out of it. And I did. I stayed out of it. And it wasn't until the very end that I had to make a decision that it clearly wasn't working. I think Phil knew it too. I think he hoped I would have more stamina, but I didn't. I think it was much more about this triangle thing. It was much more about his philosophy, that he couldn't get the group to buy into it. And I think he got yesed a lot. I think they'd be under their breath going, this is not a great idea. And he got into conflict with some players over it. 
but I think he tried hard to get his system in. I just don't think he ever got it in. On spinning off the Nixon Rangers into a company separate from his entertainment properties, fueling speculation, Dolan might sell the teams. The teams are very valuable assets, and they get more valuable every year. I think that will continue to go on. But as a business, you're not killing anybody with your growth. It's single-digit growth. That's really not any way to get it to go beyond that. But it's still a good asset. It's better than putting your money in the bank. I can tell you that nobody in my family wants to sell the Knicks or Rangers. It's not just my dad. It's the whole family. It's my five brothers and sisters. They like being owners, and they just have no appetite for running the team. That's a different animal. I don't have any appetite for running the team, either one of them. That's not my expertise. On the notion, he seems more willing than his family to consider selling his teams. I love the Knicks and Rangers, right? But you still have a responsibility to your shareholders. They're not there because they're fans. You don't invest hundreds of millions of dollars in a stock because you're a fan. You do it because you think that the business is going to increase in value, that the stock price is going to go up. You have a responsibility as a guy who runs the place to deliver on that for them. That's being open and transparent. And so in that position, I can never say that I wouldn't consider selling the Knicks. Now, my family is not in that position, and they are the majority shareholders. They hold the majority of the vote. As a majority owner, I don't want to sell either. As the head of the public company, you can't say you can't sell, because then you're telling your shareholders that your own personal feelings about your assets are more important than their money, and they won't invest in you if you do that. On the belief among some high-ranking league executives that he has fielded offers upward of $5 billion for the Knicks. No one has come through with a bona fide offer. You hear numbers all the time. I think people have sent feelers out, but never any that were pursued. Yeah, the feelers are around that number, $5 billion. But those things, it's like a stock price. It's only important if you're going to buy or sell. On why he became less involved in Nick's decisions after failing to find the front office stability embodied by Rangers president Glenn Sather. I think the Knicks franchise is somewhat burdened by its history. Everybody is still waiting for Dave DeBusher to come as a player. I was searching to get out of the job. I wasn't the general manager and I wasn't the president. I was the guy still in the position I'm in now. I was still approving deals, and I got more involved than I certainly am now. But the more you get involved, you start to learn what you don't know. I became convinced that I didn't think I could add anything to it, and so when the opportunity to bring Phil came in, I was like, perfect. On why he's selling the WNBA's Liberty. I don't know how to be successful with the Liberty. We've always tried to be helpful with the league, and I believe in the Liberty product. If you go to a Liberty game, they're fun basketball games to go to. But I'll be damned if I know how to get people to go to those games. We've pumped tons of marketing dollars. We've done everything we can to make the team successful. And people don't come. I think it's the time of year and the perception that the sport is not as good as the NBA. On his three primary Nick decision makers, President Steve Mills, General Manager Scott Perry, and Head Coach David Fisdale, and his strong record of hiring African-American basketball executives. When we hired Fizz, Steve came up to me and he says, how do you feel about having an all-black front office? I'm like, we do? I didn't realize we did. I don't think that way. I think about how to get the work done. Who's the best person to do the job? We have a lot of women who work in our company who are in very senior positions. That's not because I'm trying to hire women. I think that's because women are overlooked. And so, therefore, if you're looking for the best person, the odds are stacked in favor of finding a woman for the job because the men are oversubscribed to and the women are undersubscribed to. And so, therefore, you get a better executive when you're looking at women. On his support of President Donald Trump, I've known him for a long time. I've got married at Mar-a-Lago. I'm a member of Mar-a-Lago, and I support him as a friend. And you don't have to agree with everything that he's doing in order to support him. And he's, by the way, our president. And I don't understand people who wish our president to do badly. Why would you wish your president to do badly? It's like wishing that your milkman will bring you sour milk. On Harvey Weinstein and the lawsuit filed by six women who allege they were assaulted by the filmmaker and who claims Dolan, a former Weinstein Company board member, knew about his predatory conduct. That lawsuit, they reached out for everybody that they could possibly find. I'll answer what the court needs answered from me on it, but I just think it's ridiculous. One of the things that people don't know about Harvey and I is that long before this ever happened, a year before this ever happened, I stopped relating to Harvey. I stopped being his friend because he had changed and he wasn't behaving like my friend. He was behaving like somebody, it was what I could do for him. In fact, 
I wrote him a whole letter about it, and he never responded to it, until the next time I heard from him, like six weeks later, and it was a request for tickets. And I'm like, I know you read my letter, but I gave up on him long before that. On whether he could have avoided ejecting and banning Charles Oakley from the Garden for shouting obscenities at security during the Knicks-Clippers game on February 8, 2017. He was out of control. Anybody else who went even half the way that he went would have been ejected from the venue. It just got too bad. He had to be taken out. On whether he would have approved the rehiring of Jeff Van Gundy, who quit the Knicks early in the 2001-2002 season and who recently told ESPN.com, Yes, I wanted to speak to them. I wanted the next job. But you can't argue with who they hired. I think David Fisdell is an outstanding coach. I never heard that. He wanted the job? Look, I'll do whatever's necessary to help the team. If Scott and Steve said Jeff's the right guy, fine. But it was really their call. I didn't meet anybody else other than Fizz. They said, look, he's our pick. I want you to meet him. So I did. I wasn't involved in the selection process at all. On his vision of a Knicks championship parade. I don't have a vision of a Knicks parade. I always said I wouldn't go on the parade because I didn't win the championship. The players did. I don't relish the spotlight with being the owner of the team. If we did a parade, I don't know if I'd go on the parade. I don't think I would. On singing a song for Deadspin that describes owning the Knicks as a living hell for a trust fund kid like myself. It's not a living hell, I have to say. I enjoy summers. The city, fortunately for us, is very focused on its teams. But when things aren't going well, there's a pecking order. First, it's the players. Then it's the coaches. Then it's the general manager. Then it's the owner. And there's no satisfaction to be had anywhere along that line for people who are unhappy about losing. So you hear it. I don't relish in the focus that's put on me. I'm all about work. So, yeah, I don't really love that part of it all. To be honest, we won the first game this season at home. It was great, and I'm walking out of the building, and people are yelling at me, and they're actually yelling nice things. I'm like, oh God, it's not something that I really enjoy either way. I'm not hiding, I just want to be me. In New York, I really can't go out in public without having a security person with me. And I'm hearing stuff and it's like, hey, I'm just shopping here. A lot of times people are nice. Hi, how are you doing? Are we going to get this guy? Is this going to happen? I try to be nice to them, but usually people have negative things to say. They like to jump out, shout something horrible and run away. That happens all the time. Even at dinner, it's not fun. Is it fun to work under Jim Dolan inside the self-anointed world's most famous arena? Stories of Dolan verbally demolishing subordinates over the years are legendary, and he has threatened the job of at least one security employee who stopped him in the garden after failing to recognize him. Dolan also fired his security chief in the wake of the Oakley fiasco. Sometimes Dolan says, you have to wake up your group. One former executive who praises Dolan's willingness to spend on his teams also says the Garden's executive chairman had created a culture of fear in the building that left employees on edge, uncertain of what they will encounter from one day to the next. Dolan contends that diligent and productive workers have nothing to fear on his watch. But if you're hiding in the shadows and you're just hoping that people don't notice that you're not working, he says, then you could be afraid, yes. On the topic of Garden culture, this much is clear. Media paranoia is an indisputable part of the building's playbook. Years ago, Dolan considered trying to ban reporters he felt had been unfair in their coverage, and Garden officials advised team personnel against speaking to credentialed writers deemed too critical. Dolan put in place media training sessions for employees. Latrell Sprewell and Marcus Camby fell into disfavor after walking out on one, an expectation that MSG network announcers wouldn't harshly criticize the home teams which led to the dumping of broadcasting legend Marv Albert, and a policy that prohibited personnel from conducting interviews without a media relations official present. Dolan once broke up a casual conversation former GM Glenn Grunwald was having with a columnist outside the Knicks locker room because the conversation, in his words that night, hasn't been approved. Today, Dolan confirms that his PR department does keep clip file dossiers on those who cover the Garden and its teams. He says he'd recommend the same to all CEOs, so that they don't unwittingly invite any foxes into their billion-dollar henhouses. For this story, a Garden official listened in on all interviews conducted with the Dolan executives and associates who were made available to comment on the record. But what people don't realize about Jim is that he's actually a major defender of the First Amendment, maintains his brother Patrick, owner of the Long Island newspaper Newsday and former president of the TV station News 12. 
And I can tell you that because I ran News 12 for 27 years. And during that time, we teched off a lot of very powerful people, all the way to the governor's office. Some of those people were very important to the company. And not once did I ever feel the slightest pressure from Jim to alter or delete or slant our coverage. Although he was in a position to do that, he always, always had News 12's back. This is the Dolan dichotomy. Bad Jim is the owner who can be his own worst enemy, the contrarian who too often subscribes to the notion that whenever everyone in the room tells him he is wrong, that's when he knows he is right. Dolan denies ever overruling a room full of executives who unanimously agreed to paint the garden roof black merely because he preferred to see a brown roof from his 26th-floor office overlooking it. Bad Jim is the owner who once battled the Yankees and denied fans televised games as a casualty of unnecessary cable squabbles and who inspired some garden officials to wish his father would rein him in. Bad Jim is the owner some believe dearly misses the wisdom and guidance of Mark Lusgarten, who died of pancreatic cancer in 1999, starring Dolan's all-out support of the Lusgarten Foundation, which has directed $165 million to pancreatic cancer research, and who knew how to play away from Dolan's weaknesses. Bad Jim is the owner who years ago, on occasion, would play his guitar on the Knicks team plane, even after losses, according to several witnesses. It was the last thing the players and coaches wanted to hear, save one regular on those flights. I just remember the looks on their faces. Dolan denies this claim and calls it somebody's fantasy. Bad Jim receives an angry email from a Knicks fan of more than 60 years and responds with an angrier email, calling the man a hateful mess, suggesting he might be an alcoholic and ordering him to start rooting for the Nets, according to Deadspin. Bad Jim responds to a heckler who was holding a beer while shouting at him to sell the team by confronting the man, berating him, and accusing him of being drunk. People who come out of the blue, they don't know you, they don't know anything about you, and send a hateful tirade at you, Dolan says today. I mean, who does that? A good Jim would not return fire like this, of course, though his friends and top officials swear that a good Jim does indeed exist and represents the owner's more dominant day-to-day -day personality. Good Jim organizes the benefit concerts for victims of the 9-11 attacks, Hurricane Katrina and Hurricane Sandy. Good Jim adds $100,000 to his previous financial support of Carmelo Anthony's relief efforts for hurricane victims in Puerto Rico on the day the Knicks traded Melo to Oklahoma City to show, Dolan says, that the company actually really did care about what he was doing with charity work and that it wasn't about trying to make the relationship better with him. Good Jim arranges and regularly attends annual Christmas Day events to feed thousands of homeless New Yorkers and donates tens of thousands to the College Fund of Children of an Employee's Relative Who Died Young and offers his plane to Tyson Chandler to fly back and forth across the country after Knicks games during the center's time in New York to visit his mother who had been diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer. Even before that I thought highly of Jim, says Chandler, now a member of the Lakers, because he always went above and beyond for his players in trying to make sure his players are comfortable. I will forever respect and love him and appreciate him for what he did for me and my family in that moment, because that was the worst time in my career. Good Jim speaks passionately to a group of recovering alcoholics, sharing his hopes and fears and experience with the disease, rather than attend a Rangers playoff victory over Montreal. Good Jim helps an executive family member who is fighting addiction. Good Jim gives Glenn Sather his 10-year sobriety chip at a bygone time when many were calling for Sather's job because, Dolan says, it represented faith and hope and belief and I wanted him to know that I had all those things in him. Sather says he still carries that chip in his money clip every day. Good Jim charges Steve Mills to consider female candidates for the Knicks head coaching job and, according to NBA Commissioner Adam Silver, often uses league meetings to raise the need for teams to give opportunities to women and people of color. There's no ceiling, says Dolan's highest-ranking female executive at MSG, retiring executive VP and CFO Donna Coleman, who describes the organizational culture almost 13 years after Brown Sanders was unjustly fired as a very safe, fair environment for women. Dolan has given me opportunities I don't know if I would have gotten anyplace else. Another high-ranking female executive, Sandra Capel, oversees a garden program Dolan first installed at Cablevision that's designed to enhance the employee's benefits and workplace experience, increase rewards and recognition for good job performance, and, perhaps, attack the external perception that the chairman rules with a cold and punitive hand. Dolan says his mission is to ensure his employees want to be here and they want to stay here. Because when you get employees that want to be here and want to stay here, they get better at their jobs and you don't have to hire somebody else.
but as soon as the narrative that Dolan has mellowed a bit takes shape, he ends up in a steel cage match with Oakley, who filed a lawsuit against Dolan and MSG for, among other things, defamation, after the Knicks released a statement saying they hoped the former power forward gets some help soon, and after their owner advanced an inexcusable pattern by telling ESPN Radio's The Michael K Show that Oakley may have a problem with alcohol. The court has yet to rule on an MSG motion to dismiss the defamation suit. We are confident that when a jury sees the video evidence, Oakley attorneys Douglas Wigdor and Renan Varghese of Wigdor LLP said in a statement to ESPN.com, they will recognize that it was Dolan's behavior that precipitated the unwarranted assault on Mr. Oakley. Dolan also ends up singing a song about sexual predators that compels an emerging sports radio voice, Maggie Gray of WFAN, to call him a hypocrite, a vile piece of trash, and a disgusting human for presiding over his own harassment scandal and for bringing back Thomas, of all people, to run a woman's basketball team, the Liberty. She went way the hell over the line, says Dolan, who adds that he waited and waited for an apologetic and reassuring phone call that never came. On cue, after station representatives later requested Garden Talent for an appearance, along with an MSG contribution for a charity event, Dolan went to DEFCON 1 and banned his employees from doing any business with WFAN and other stations run by his parent company, Entercom, as first reported by the New York Post. Dolan later made the contribution directly to the affected charity. Imagine yourself in your neighborhood, says Dolan, who keeps homes in the city and on the Long Island waterfront, and your neighbor two doors down, who comes to picnics, all of a sudden does something like Maggie's rant and totally trashes you to the entire neighborhood, and then shows up two months later and says, Hey, can I borrow that socket wrench set that you have? What would you do with that? I don't find it noble to sit there and take an attack like that, but it has to be really over the line. If you don't have a tough skin, you're never going to survive. But at the same time, you have to feel good about yourself. And if you don't stand up for yourself, how are you going to do that? David Stern once observed that Jim Dolan's Knicks were not a model of intelligent management. Stern's protege and successor Adam Silver deflects a recent question about whether he feels differently. The commissioner did say that Dolan's stature has grown among his peers, that Jim serves on a number of impactful league committees and that his expertise in the media business is unrivaled. Silver also says that, more than any other owner, Dolan uses data and sound business principles instead of emotion in difficult negotiations, and that he forever calls the league office as an invested advocate for the Knicks. What would Silver tell an inquiring NBA player about Dolan? I'd say he's incredibly passionate and he's also incredibly loyal, the commissioner says. And that's what you can expect with him. He will be very direct with you, and he will pull no punches. Silver would like Knicks fans to understand that Dolan suffers as horribly as they do. I can't imagine any owner who's lost more sleep over the last two decades regarding a sports team than Jim has, Silver says. Everyone close to Jim swears the same thing. Mills and Sather and Thomas and Garden President Andrew Lusgarden, Mark's son, talk about how badly the owner wants to win for his paying customers. Barry Watkins, a longtime Dolan aide who recently started Clairvoyant, a media training company, calls the notion that his former employer doesn't care about his fan base the most ludicrous premise of all things about Jim Dolan. Van Gundy, the former Nick, calls Dolan an absolute home run when it comes to caring and committing resources to his teams. Wayne Gretzky, a former Ranger, says he believes Dolan wants to win as badly as any athlete on his payroll. Gretzky says if given the choice, the owner would pick a title with his basketball team over one with his hockey team. It would make his life complete if he could win a Knicks championship, Gretzky says. Dolan already has a number of trophies on his shelf. He put a billion dollars into a garden renovation met with widespread approval, and the president he forced out in 2001, Dave Checkets, doubts that any other NBA owner would have made that kind of staggering investment. Dolan's partnership with music mogul Irving Azoff produced a stunning transformation of the forum in Los Angeles and gifted Dolan's band a chance to open for the Eagles, though it also delivered Phil Jackson, an Azoff friend, to the Knicks. Radio City Music Hall, the Chicago Theater, the Beacon Theater, and a spinoff of the MSG Network, along with investments in the Tau Group, Tribeca Film Festival, and Boston Calling Music Festival represent a long list of successful purchases and moves that erase earlier mistakes Dolan has made in acquiring the Wiz and Clearview Cinemas chains. As part of his growth strategy, the Garden chairman now wants to add to the sphere venues going up in Vegas and London. He hoped to build one on the west side of Manhattan before running into a brick wall of bureaucracy. He's trying to disrupt an industry, Lusgarten says, of the state-of-the-art venues. That hasn't changed since the Greeks and Romans. Brandon Ross, an analyst for BTIG, 
says Dolan is effectively betting his legacy on something other than the Rangers and Knicks. He sees something in the entertainment world that he can change and be remembered for, Ross says. But to the New York sports fan, Dolan's entertainment vision and boardroom victories are worth less than the cost of a hot dog and a beer. Nothing is for free in New York City, says Mark Messier, the only captain to deliver a title to the Garden over the past 45 years. And that goes for an athlete or an owner or a coach or anyone else. I think at some point, if Jim wins a championship, his generosity and the way he's given the resources to his teams will be more loudly applauded. Jim's give back is incredible, and your outreach into the community is a big part of owning a franchise. But in the end, we are all judged on whether we win or not, and Jim is no different. In an attempt to paint a hopeful portrait of Dolan's future, Silver points out that Golden State Warriors owner Joe Lacob was booed off his own floor in 2012, and now, after winning three championships with Steve Kerr, the coach the Knicks failed to hire, is considered one of the best owners in sports. And yet, forever captured by cameras and frozen in the minds of Knicks fans, is the unmistakable sight of a defeated Dolan, slumped in his courtside seat. Except for one fleeting run six seasons ago, when they won 54 games in a playoff series, the Knicks haven't been the contending Knicks of the 90s since Dolan ran out checkets and then ran through a parade of executives. Scott Layden, Thomas, Donnie Walsh, Grunwald, Mills, Jackson, in his futile pursuit of a credible contender. Now Dolan is rebuilding yet again, and hoping Kevin Durant or Kyrie Irving will take his money next summer to fast-forward a process that has the Knicks at 9-22 and as they await the eventual return of their injured star Kristaps Porzingis. Meanwhile, facing a long road back to NBA relevance, Dolan remains a magnet for negative headlines. The Federal Trade Commission recently said the MSG chairman violated federal securities law for a second time by missing a deadline to report his acquisition of voting shares in his company. Dolan settled the case at a price of more than $600,000. The bill his law firm, Debevoise and Plimpton, agreed to pay, the Garden said, as a result of their mistake. Dolan wasn't happy that he took another PR hit for someone else's error, but wasn't surprised that he did. That's life in the big city though he wishes his terms of engagement in New York weren't as nasty, despite his ever-present willingness to escalate a minor scuffle into nuclear conflict. There's a change in tone, even in the press, he says. It's the same things I don't like about being owner of the team. Dolan refers to a more civil climate in his father's prime. Back then, he says, people understood you were doing a job, and they didn't necessarily come to these conclusions about your personality, who you are, whether you're an evil person. It's a little unreal today. But that doesn't mean Dolan is ready to retire from the fight game. He believes he is ahead on points on the judges' cards, by the way, no matter how often the media portray him as clueless and as the most conspicuous obstacle separating the Knicks from that parade he doesn't plan on attending. Dolan finds solace in the fact that Rangers fans generally are on relatively decent terms with him, and the fact that the investment community doesn't see in him what Knicks fans see. So in the end, is Dolan actually a consistent corporate winner with the misfortune of being known for the one thing he can't fix, the Knicks? Or is he better described by a 2015 Forbes headline that called him the dumbest owner in sports? Dolan commits only so much time to the process of finding out. All right, the concert's over, he announces as he rises from his couch after outlasting Justin Timberlake's wasted soundcheck, slamming shut the window of his soul he left open for two hours, three minutes. He doesn't want to get consumed by his teams, or get distracted from his spheres, or get stopped on a Manhattan street for the purpose of being ridiculed or praised. In the end, Jim Dolan wants to make his old man proud and his shareholders happy. And after that, he just wants to be left alone. Joining me now is ESPN senior writer Ian O'Connor. Ian, thank you once again for taking the time. Thank you, Mike. It's uh, You write a story like this or you become very busy, so we really appreciate the time. No, that's part of it. And, uh, listen, anytime you can get two hours with somebody like James Dolan, who doesn't grant interviews very often, you have to take advantage of it. I think we did. And, uh, I think it's an important piece because he's, uh, been arguably the most influential sports figure in the world's most relevant marketplace, uh, for nearly 20 years. And I think a lot of people don't know a lot about him or didn't, uh, until, uh, hopefully we, uh, shed some light on him not only as the head of Madison Square Garden, the Knicks and the Rangers, but also as a man, mm -hmm. uh, for better or worse, in a lot of cases for worse. But uh, so uh, hopefully people saw it as a uh, the most complete portrait of him. And uh, and that's what it was intended to be. 
And you did a fantastic job. And going back to what you just said, like talking about sort of the origins as well, is what I found very interesting, kind of jumped out at me a little bit in the story was, how did he get the keys to the castle? Uh, and I say that with other brothers and other other family members uh, going to work for their father, Chuck Dolan. But how did he get the keys to the castle? So it seemed pretty quickly after he was not doing as well as his father had hoped with a sports radio station because he then had to check into rehab for a pretty serious substance abuse issue. He did. He was in rehab in 1993, and he was an alcoholic. He also uh, abused cocaine and marijuana, he told me in our interview. And, and it was just a couple of years after that, where all of a sudden he's uh, at the top of the uh, organizational flow chart, chart at Cablevision. And yeah. I know Chuck was quoted years ago saying, uh, when asked why, he said, well, mostly because nobody else wanted it. <laughs> and I, I think it was more than that. Uh, so he had belief in his son, uh, despite his issues. And and then in 99, uh, when Mark Lusgarten, who is a, a longtime Chuck Dolan associate, mm-hmm. when he got sick uh, with uh, pancreatic cancer and ultimately died, then uh, Jim took over as a guy who loves sports and, again, was running uh, Cablevision at the time. So uh, he took over the garden and ultimately forced out Dave Checkett, who had been uh, running the the sports teams and other businesses uh, for the Dolans, and and all of a sudden there's Jim, uh, really at the uh, the top of the Knicks organization, starting to make serious basketball decisions, and that's when everything went south. Well, it also in all this chaos, you bring up Mark Lesgarden, and it seems that we. Uh, it has echoes of when you hear about the story of like the Walt Disney company in 1994 with Frank Wells, their president who passed away in a helicopter accident in some of this chaos that, you know, Charles uh, Dolan would say is brought on him and others would say he brings it on himself. Mm -hmm. It seems to be like that missing piece of stability here that, well, a lot of people don't know much about Mark Lesgarden or know what really he did. And it seems like the na- his name comes up a lot in the like if you're in the tri-state area because of the foundation that was started in his name after he passed away of can- pancreatic cancer. But what about what, what was how important was his role? Like, is it underplayed in this in this whole Dolan story? I think it is, Mike. I think there are a lot of people who have no idea that Mark Lustgarden had such a major impact on Jim and really the entire Dolan family. He was described, and I've never interviewed, I'd never interviewed uh, Mark uh, before he passed away, but just talking to a lot of people who knew him they and, and who know Jim Dolan, they said, listen, you have no idea that I, I, we think a lot of these controversies wouldn't have happened if Mark was still alive because he knew Jim's strengths, he knew his weaknesses, he knew how to, how to be a buffer and uh, he would have played to Jim's strengths and away from his weaknesses and maybe talked some sense into him at times when he needed that. And he was a really uh, tough guy by all accounts, uh, a fair guy, but a very tough guy. And one example, Jeff Van Gundy told me that the first time he met Mark Luscart, and it was after the Knicks uh, in that playoff series against Miami where there was that uh, that brawl and some Knicks <laughs> came onto the court and they ended There's up losing that. That's right. And they ended up losing that series. Mm-hmm. And in the following training camp, Lusgarden and Dolan wanted to have lunch with Van Gundy. He had never met either man, even <laughs> though he was the head coach of the Knicks. So he, he thought it was just going to be a regular sort of get to know you better lunch. He sits down and Lusgarden just starts tearing into him about how you're running. That cost us a playoff series. That cost us money. And you're running the most undisciplined team in the NBA. And Jeff obviously didn't agree with that, and he challenged Lusgarten to uh, talk to people around the NBA and see what they think about that assessment. But it, it, Van Gundy respected the fact that the guy had a belief, and he told it right to his face. He expressed it to his face, man to man, and and he ended up uh, appreciating that about Lusgarten, even though he vehemently disagreed with that position. So. So Mark was a very tough and direct guy, but also really knew how to get through to Dolan when uh, situations arose at uh, where, where Dolan needed some help. And and I think he's really missed that wisdom and guidance over the years. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those, it just kind of jumped out to me as one of those missing pieces where it's like, wow, like this, 
it's not that this this guy's a, a ship, but he's just a little rudderless. But then when you you quoted somebody at um at one person who said a guard official said that um at times Dolan can come across as an eighth grade science teacher. And is that like mentality when he comes into business? Is that more of a tool to trap you, do you think? Or just another example where like I'm just getting done what I want to get done. I like I do not care what you think. No, that that actually Mike was Chuck. Uh Chuck was described as as more the his disposition oh, right, and Chuck, demeanor. Right, yeah, as more of a, a an eighth grade science teacher. Uh but he can in business in a deal, he'll eat your heart out and and I think uh actually Jim described himself in our interview as just more of a street fighter than his father was even though his father was a tough tough guy when it came to making big deals i i think uh jim sees himself more as a street fighter just just a a guy who chuck was from the midwest jim more of a new yorker and mm-hmm. just you see how combative he is with whether it's charles oakley whether it's wfan slash intercom slash maggie gray the broadcaster who said some some tough things about him on the air yes and and whether he's right or wrong i mean the one thing about him is this is the, I would say the thing that I probably appreciated the most coming out of the interview is he doesn't talk in corporate speak. He does give you his honest opinion. Yeah. He's very candid. Now, I disagree with most of or much of what he says, but he does tell you what he believes. And uh, so uh, he is combative. And whether he's right or wrong, he's going to try to defend what he believes is right, his family, his employees, his shareholders and that has that approach has put him in a lot of situations that he could have avoided. But yeah, I guess and I know I apologize for for screwing that up. I because I meant to ask that question to then ask, is it sort of the case where then uh, he learned from his father as like, I'm going to go and this is to your point, getting in trouble a little bit because of it. I'm watching how he's kind of doing things. And that's exactly how I'm not going to do it. Well, I don't know if it was that so much as, uh, Mike, his, his wanting to constantly prove that he's in the position he's in, not because of who his father was. And I think, uh, being driven to just prove his value to everyone around him who just thought you were born on third base, you were handed this company, mm-hmm. you didn't earn it, uh, you're a, a rich daddy's boy who, uh, carries yourself that way, which frankly at times he does. Uh, I think, his uh, being combative most of the time, if not all of the time, is about that uh, sort of uh, desire to prove his worth every single day. And there are a lot of fights that he just didn't need to take on, whether or not he was trying to prove his uh, value or worth or not. And so I, I think that's really at the heart of the way he manages, the way he acts, the way he is in the public arena. And I don't think it served him well most of the time. Now you talk, you talked a second ago, you know, how we handled like what Maggie Gray said about him. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of going into, I wanted to ask you a, a little bit about the song he wrote and his relationship with Harvey Weinstein. And what I found interesting in this is how, you know, he wrote that song and he, he really, he really put himself out there and something, whether people kind of laugh at like, how is this like uh, this billionaire, has a rock band, but it's obviously something that he it, he holds very dear to him, and he put himself out there with a song. But at one side, he has that part of him against Harvey Weinstein, but the other, he seemed when you spoke to him to be a little combative about the own the uh, the court case that the Garden faced with Anuka Brown Sanders in relation to the environment that he created along with Isaiah Thomas. It just seems like one or the other and. Like it, it, they didn't seem to really mix, and it seemed to be like almost like quintessential Dolan, the sense that half of me is one way and half is the other. Right, it's part of the Dolan dichotomy, I guess. Uh, the uh, the other thing is uh, when you bring up that song, I should have known. Well, it's it the timing of that is, is rather bizarre, given that six women are currently uh, suing him as part of the Weinstein board at the time mm-hmm. for allegedly knowing about Weinstein's uh, <laughs> predatory sexual misconduct and doing nothing about it. And then to sing a song I should have known at, at the timing of that was, <laughs> was, was bizarre. We like to enter this into exhibit a right. Uh, well, he does say he didn't know. So that yeah. that's the point of the lawsuit. He said the lawsuit is ridiculous and, but he's going to answer for those uh, allegations 
in court if he if he has to. I, yeah. I think he maybe uh, the song also speaks to the the fact that he doesn't fully grasp the long term damage that the Brown Sanders case did to his public yeah. standing and to his organization. That was a case. David Stern was begging him to settle that case. I think the commissioner of the NBA at the time realized that was a lost cause for the Knicks and the Garden and mm-hmm. for Dolan. He didn't listen to Stern. I know other people were counseling him to try to settle that case. The the one the most disappointing thing probably about the interview is when I asked him about regrets in the way that case was handled. I was hoping that uh, he might say, listen, we always thought we had the uh, the truth on our side. The jury said we didn't. Uh, I want to apologize. Uh, finally, all these years later, uh, we should have done this earlier to Anuka Brown, as she's now known. Mm-hmm. And uh, if we did have a hostile work environment, I wasn't aware of it, but that will never happen again to any employee under my watch. And I really apologize. Had he done that, had he said that? I mm-hmm. think he would have scored a lot of points or some sure. points among the people right now, the corner of uh, you know, the Knicks fans who just detest him, really. Uh, but he didn't. Instead, he, he sort of defaulted to the position of we we screwed up our defense. I should have been more involved. The truth <laughs> would have come out then. And also, in retrospect, yeah, I'm the guy in charge. And if we settle it, it keeps it out of the newspapers and the optics wouldn't have been nearly as bad. I That was not the answer I was hoping for. But then also, the other thing I found the connection to be so – short-sighted is to every point you made and then also you're dealing with isaiah thomas who even if someone is not even if you have a knicks fan out there who is not as sensitive to anything that may have happened to anuka brown they hate isaiah thomas for what he did to the knicks so to sort of double down in your support of his environment just seemed like there was for someone to be so smart in business in different ways and make his shareholders a lot of money it just it seemed like a never ending cycle of bad decisions associated with a stubbornness to not admit like that. Maybe I messed this up. That's right. And uh, you look at all of the basketball executives. He cycled through on, on the Knicks side of things in the garden and starting all the way back to uh, he, he, listen. There there probably uh, was a time, an expiration date on the check. It's run. Uh, mm-hmm. late 90s, early 2000s at some point. I think he was probably bounced out of there a little too early. But then you go from Scott Layden to Isaiah to uh, Steve Mills and, and Donnie Walsh and Glenn Grunwald and ultimately back to – well, Phil Jackson, of course, and then back yep. to Mills and now mm-hmm. Scott Perry. It's just – it never ends. Right. And the common narrative thread through that run is is Jim. And mm-hmm. and so he's been searching for this figurehead to put at the top of his organization like he's had with Glenn Sather for a long time on the hockey side, and he hasn't found that person. Hiring Isaiah Thomas for the Liberty made absolutely no sense whatsoever. <laughs> to put him in charge of a women's basketball team. And I have a good, actually, professional relationship with Isaiah Thomas, and I think if you're going to hire – Jim loves him, right? So, yes, okay. he clearly so, does. Right. So if you want to bring him back into the – and I said this to Isaiah Thomas. If you want to bring him back into the organization as a consultant for the Knicks, as someone who has a lot of connections around the league, free agents do respect him because he's a Hall of Fame player, to actually help in free agency, I really wouldn't have had a, a, a major problem with that at all. But to put him on the women's side, it, that made no sense. Do uh, I know he mentioned to you about – how he met Harvey Feinstein later on, uh, Weinstein later on, and um, and after writing him a pretty long letter, and it clear it was clear to him like, listen, I know you read the letter, and I know you're ignoring me by the way you're talking to me because you're asking for like Nick's tickets, right? Was there any indication uh, from him, like, or anyone know, like, what was in that letter? Well, he said that he basically and, – and he didn't get very specific on the contents of that letter. Uh, he did say that uh, he ended the friendship before the allegations surfaced, publicly anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just basically that uh, he thought Harvey Weinstein was acting selfishly and that their relationship had become about what I can do for you and there wasn't much in, in the way of a return on that. And so he wrote him a letter saying that and once – Weinstein never responded until he asked for for more tickets. Huh. That's when he decided that the friendship was over. So, uh, but not the the actual contents of the letter, he he only generalized to me and didn't get specific. So there were a few. Uh, you had a couple quotes in the story from women who who mentioned that there were opportunities that they had to grow that they would never have had if they weren't given to them by James Dolan. Mm-hmm. So do you think? 
his sort of push for female empowerment, like league wide or in the company, is his way of acknowledging he was that was a wrong situation, but I'm never going to say it. It's more of a passive aggressive way. I'm going to do different things, but I'm never going to admit to you that that was my fault or I was wrong. Uh, it's a good question, Mike. I, I think there's some truth to that, that uh, deep down in, in, in a place he's not going to admit exists for public consumption, that he probably has those feelings. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the other hand, he's saying publicly that he still thinks that the truth w- did not come out of that trial in the Anuka Brown Sanders case. Uh, I, I will say this in talking to a lot of people. Now, listen, when I interviewed garden executives that they made available to comment on the record, there was a garden public relations official listening at the time. And these people that I'm talking to on the record are being paid rather handsomely by James Dolan. So Correct. I, that's why I put that in the piece. I wanted the reader to understand these were the conditions under which these people were talking. So huh. but I do believe um, in speaking to two top female executives that the garden today is a there's a healthier work environment in that building than there was, say, 10, 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, how much healthier, I don't know. But I think that Dolan has tempered his daily approach to managing people in that building. It used to be absurdly volcanic where he could turn on you. It might have been worse than George Steinbrenner in his heyday. Right. Uh, he could threaten your job. If you caught him on the wrong day, you didn't really want to catch him on the wrong day. He could be extremely impetuous. I, I, I'm not saying that doesn't happen at all anymore, but I mm-hmm. think it, it is a at least slightly better place to work for those kind, those employees. I, I think he's always been fairly good to the players and coaches and top mm-hmm. executives, but it's the security people and, and employees on that level that have taken the brunt of it over the years. And I, and I, uh, from what I could gather, I think it's become a healthier work environment at the garden. Do you, um, do you feel that, like, you, you, I mean, the whole, your whole story starts with the two of you, but then of course there's a, this VP taking notes in the background. Is this a question of someone who feels they were historically misquoted or are they, I mean, this being paranoid about who talks to who and like you mentioned breaking up a conversation like that wasn't approved. And and that, media- yeah, that that was me, by the way. I, I was standing there. Oh, with, that was you? Oh. Yeah, I was standing there with Glenn Grunwald, who at the time was in the middle of a 54-win season where the Knicks actually won a playoff series. Mm-hmm. And it's going back, what, five or six years. And and we were just like columnists and reporters do. You want to build good relationships. And frankly, that serves the organization too. Yes. And and that James Dolan doesn't recognize that to me is, is sort of beyond me. But – uh, yeah, and, and we were standing in the hallway outside the locker room. I think the Knicks had won the game, and and everything was was good and positive, and and so it was embarrassing because I saw a grown up executive who had done a good job being mm-hmm. scolded by James Dolan. He lowered his head and mumbled something, and walked away from me, sort of cowering from the moment, and and it was embarrassing. And so I witnessed it. I was part of it, and and why that paranoia exists to the degree it does in the Garden, I it's hard to explain. Now. And the, the reason why, and I agree with you, the reason why I find it so hard to explain in marriage to the fact that Jim Dolan has done well with business in other avenues, mm-hmm. but isn't part of a successful business being willing to be transparent about like indisputable facts. So like if you should you ask about this signing or that or what just happened and in, in, in the situation you just referenced, a very positive thing. Like that's like how, how does that, like the businessman James Dolan reconcile with this version of him. Well, it's interesting because they did write their hockey fans, their Rangers fans, with uh, plans to rebuild. I thought that was actually a very good move uh, mm-hmm. to do that. Say, hey, we've gone to the playoffs, what, 11 times in 12 years. We got to the cup finals. We didn't win the whole thing. Uh, but it's time now to rebuild. And, and they were very transparent about that, which I thought was, was, was great, frankly. Do you think that's, do you think that's Dolan's, as you said earlier, his trust in the stability of Glenn Sather? It's that, that was part of it, I imagine. And I don't know who came up with the idea. It probably was Sather. Hey, let's, our fans have been great. Uh, we've given them a good run. I think we're in a position where we have some credibility now. Let's tell them the truth on this. And, you know, I, I guess now with the Knicks fans, they have no credibility. Until they win, mm-hmm. it, it's hard for their fans to really trust them on any front. And until they prove they can get a Kevin Durant this summer or Kyrie yeah. Irving or, or Kawhi Leonard or somebody of that 
level that uh and, and start winning some games and and uh you know so I, they've lost all credibility with their Knicks fan base and, and Dolan certainly has and it's going to take a lot for them to to win that back. And when you talk to him and he and he seemed to say he oh yeah well you know I would stay out of basketball operations but like how can any owner really say that? I mean they just like they have to more to your point of credibility you have to prove that more than just say that. And it seems that everyone knows, especially in that building, while they may not be getting – say they're not involved, everyone knows who's in charge and looming over everything should you behave a certain way. So that seems like it's more – like part of the issue is that where you ha- you have someone who says it, – it seems that – this is all through sports. The more someone says, I'm probably not going to get involved in this, the more everyone who's doing the day-to-day boots on the ground works knows – uh oh, this guy's probably watching everything. Yeah, it's uh Adam Silver told me that Dolan is uh always checking in at the league office and acting as an invested advocate of the Knicks. Dolan, on the other hand, says basically I don't think really much about the Knicks and Rangers on a daily basis. What I do is I provide the resources, I hire I try to hire the right people, I check in occasionally with them. And I go to the games and that's it. He's con- completely consumed now by his entertainment properties, mm-hmm. by these new venues he's building in Vegas and London. And he's trying to get them in other cities, yep. including New York. Uh, and, and that's what he's all about now. I think like the next 10 years, he's going to be much more focused on that and trying to establish a greater legacy in entertainment than he, than he has at least to date in sports. So I think as long as he provides resources, and continues to ask his top hockey and basketball people, what do you need? Just tell me and I'll give it to you. It all comes down to him hiring the right, at least basketball executive, because he hasn't done that. And it appears yeah. he did do it with Sather, although people wanted him fired early on too. Sure. But I think he, he needs to find the right person to run the Knicks. And let's see if Steve Mills is that guy against the odds with Scott Perry. And uh, until he does that, he's going to be looked at by most New York Knicks fans as the worst or one of the worst owners in the NBA. And he's earned that. I mean, he's uh, over yes. time. When you lose it, Mark Messier told me this on the phone. He's like, yeah, you know, Jim does all these charitable things and, and, and he does provide resources, but it's all about winning. And this is coming from the one captain who's won something in New York. Yes. Uh, in the garden over the last, what, 45 years. Sure. He, he won that cup in 94. He ended that 54 year drought. He said, if he doesn't win, nothing else matters. And that goes for every coach, executive, player, and owner in New York. But that's so, you also had that point where, where Wayne Gretzky says, I, I think he loses just as more sleep than even some of the players over some of these losses. But as you also said, his actions of the way he talked about, like, oh, I could, you know, I'm doing this and the entertainment stuff. Like, is, does he really, how, does he deeply care about his status and legacy as a New York sports owner? Or is it for him, it's just, it's all part of the business. I think he cared, Mike, more about it years ago. I, I would say 10 years ago in the same situation, he would be spending a lot of time worrying about whether or not Kevin Durant was going to take his money this summer. I think he did mm-hmm. worry quite a bit about that when they thought they had a legitimate chance at LeBron James years ago. And my understanding is they actually do have a legitimate chance this time around. I I, I think he he does care about the fans and trying to win a championship for them. But I think he's come to the realization that, you know what, I've got a better shot at really uh, leaving a positive, lasting legacy in entertainment as opposed mm-hmm. to sports. And so I do believe over time, which I think is another reason why he could ultimately sell the team, is that he's going to put his eggs in that basket without abandoning completely the sports side of his professional life. Yeah, because it seems like at one part of the conversation, the feeling I got was that you had – was like I want the Knicks to win, and as he and the reason I think this way is because he famously said like I don't think I'd go to the parade, but I want the Knicks to win because he wants people to come up on the street and give him a high five and not like give him the finger, basically. <laughs> well, he told me after they won their first game this year, as he was leaving the building, that some people actually shouted out some positive things at him, which is a rarity, uh-huh. and he didn't like that either because he just doesn't like the whole public aspect of being. An owner now, he told me that he books some musical appearances for his band in Europe just to get away and not be recognized on the street. When mm-hmm. he goes to dinner in New York, he feels like he has to take a security guard with him. So, 
his his taste uh, for being the owner of the Knicks and all the public things that come along with that and Rangers, uh, it's different as opposed to where he was, say, 10 years ago. And I think the, the criticism from fans and media on the basketball side has really worn him down. Mm-hmm. And he wants to escape it. And hey, one way of escaping it is actually winning some games and signing somebody like Kevin Durant or Kyrie Irving and getting the talent in here to do that. And he has not – they had the one run uh, where they won the 54 games and won a yep. playoff series uh, with Melo. And all of a sudden, a few months later, the GM is out the door. And, and yeah. why that happened, I'm still not quite sure. But this whole revo- – I don't blame him for Phil Jackson – I blame Phil Jackson for Phil Jackson because ninety five percent of us thought that was a hire that he had to make, even though sure. Phil wasn't coaching the team. Mm-hmm. He what you were paying him sixty million dollars basically to do something he had never done. He was still one of the great minds in the history of the game, and it was a worthy gamble. The fact it didn't work out, I would blame Phil for, but everything else pretty much over the last seventeen years since Jeff Van Gundy left, I'm gonna put on uh Jim Dolan's plate. In the end, though, my last question to you is, how do you think he wants to be remembered in New York? And do you think he cares by who? Well, ultimately, I think he he does want to win at least one championship somewhere along the line here, whether it's with the Rangers or the Knicks. Wayne Gretzky, of all people, told me he he would much prefer to win one with the Knicks Mm -hmm. because he just thinks that's going to be a bigger deal in New York. And. And, and and he's probably right because the Rangers did win more recently in 94, the Knicks 73. So you can imagine New York City, which is a great basketball town, if they actually do win one uh, over the next uh, five to seven years, what it would be like. Um, I, I, I think, uh, Mike, that at this point, given the way he feels about just wanting to do his job when it comes to the Knicks and Rangers and then just be left alone – I think if people remember him as a significant force of change in the entertainment world, mm-hmm. he'd, he'd be good with that legacy. And then whatever you want to say about him on the sports side, he'll he'll take it. Well, we will see. And Ian O'Connor, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again. And we'll be back soon with more Double Truck Stories podcasts.